In 2020, startups in America raised about $150 billion in venture capital funding. That is a huge amount of investments until you realize how much of that went to black-led startups. Get this, only $1 billion of the $150 billion went to black founders, which comes out to less than 1% of the total funding according to the site Crunchbase. In the past 20 years, only about 200 black and Latinx founders has raised more than a million dollars, according to Fast Company. Our guest on this episode of Diverse Disruptors, Undocs Nash Ahmed, happens to be one of those very rare founders. I know it would be harder. Like I said, my mom always said, you're always going to have to work harder, but I didn't know how bad it was. And right? so he says to me, you shouldn't have any trouble raising money except for the fact you're black. He said those exact words to me. You may ask yourself, why is this so important? If you listen to our other podcast, By Every Measure, you would know that entrepreneurship is one way that we can close the racial wealth gap. According to a 2016 report from Global Policy Solutions, America's losing out over 1.1 million minority-owned businesses, which equates to just over 9 million potential jobs and 300 billion and collective national income due to biases and structural racism. Now let's get back to our guest, Nash. Being an anomaly in this space by being a black-led startup raising more than $1 million, we wanted to know more about his story and his startup, Undock. I first became aware of Nash's startup thanks to Hannibal Burris. You ever think you were depressed, but you just really needed a haircut? And you got a haircut, like, what was I worried about? I'm fresh as f What's the deal with Hannibal Burris? <laughs> Hannibal's my man. Uh, he's also an investor. I told him, like, what I was building, like, the full verse. He's like, oh, yeah, no, that's dope. What's up? It's Hannibal Burris. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. Undock. It helps you schedule meetings and video conference. It's smooth. It's dope. It fits for right now. What do you want? What do you want from me? The world is crumbling. Undock. Undock uses AI to connect people across different organizations, calendar applications, and geographies to make meetings that work. I wanted to know more about Undock, but more importantly, about the founder, Nash Ahmed, who is the son of Nigerian immigrants, and his journey to become a founder of a growing startup, which includes a stint as a producer for artists like Dipset, Ashanti, and others. But we will begin where he got his first taste of entrepreneurship, as a paper boy in New Jersey. Talk about your childhood. Talk about like, were your parents entrepreneurs? Like, what was your childhood like growing up in New Jersey? Uh, so I came here from Nigeria when I was two. And my parents uh, weren't together. Uh, but I did move in with my father around the age of six or seven. And he definitely was entrepreneurial. He, at first, he was a mechanic, and then he opened up his own shop, and then he opened up convenience stores and then dollar stores. And I always thought, my dad owns a store. That's pretty cool, right? <laughs> and now looking back, it's like, oh, okay, it's it was definitely definitely something. It gets you started on the right path for entrepreneurship. But I moved out of that house when I was I was eleven, and my first job job was being a paperboy, and there was another entrepreneurial uh, person that I wouldn't necessarily became a role model, but it was getting me 
real up close and personal look at what it is to be a hustler. So this guy pulls up. I remember his name is Tom. I remember him from age 12. His name is Tom. He pulled up in a red Honda and he always seemed to be busy, moving very fast. Like, I gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. <laughs> Come over. He dropped the papers. Uh, still be newspapers. He dropped the papers out of his uh, the back of his Honda. Move on to the next thing. Move on to the next thing, and he'd come back like clockwork to get his money. Right. <laughs> so that is the the definition of a hustler. And then for me, it's like, oh, I'm delivering paper with news on it to people, and then I come back, and then they give me money, and then they give me tips if I do it nicely. Nash was about to have an entrepreneurial, I guess you would call it, an aha moment. So it was definitely <laughs> an education on like you do things. Where you provide value, then there's a monetary exchange, and now you have money, and then you can do things with that money. <laughs> it's a pretty solid insight for an 11 year old. So Nash was out there hustling on his paper route, trying to keep up with Tom. He was making money, getting those tips he mentioned. His mom couldn't help but notice. Then one day, she sort of uh, suggested, with air quotes, he used that money for a family purchase. My mom took all of the money that I had saved for my paper out over a long period of time. It was $1,500. She took that money to buy the first family computer, really our only family computer for like six years. So it took your money you made on paper routes yes. to buy the family computer. Was that I didn't your know choice? To, no, I didn't know what to do with money. I was just like, I'm just going to save it. I don't want to spend well, it. I, I didn't want to buy anything. That's not normal for a 12-year-old. We didn't we didn't grow up with money though. So <laughs> I saved every single penny. Like I didn't oh. I didn't spend anything. I didn't buy anything. I didn't buy shoes. I didn't buy toys, trinkets, nothing. Just saved it. She said, I'm gonna get a computer. Why would a computer? What was her inspiration? Like I'm of all the things she's like, I'm gonna take this money and buy a computer. My guess is uh she was always so in like the third or fourth grade, I sat with a, a counselor that said that I was bored uh with my education. So she always tried to find something new and challenging for me to do. And it started off with teaching me like, or she hired an algebra tutor in the fifth grade, I believe. And then I was doing calculus in sixth and seventh grade or trying to, to do calculus in the fifth and sixth grade. And she was always just trying to challenge me with the next thing. And she knew computers, even though she didn't know how to use a computer very well at the time, but she knew <laughs> computers like the next challenging thing for me to do and was also good for the family to get access to the internet so she was on that wave very very early even though she wasn't personally using it for herself she was just looking out for uh, me and my siblings and making sure that we have access to all the knowledge in the world nash's mom's heart was in the right place his mom pushed him and his siblings to take school seriously to do well but school was a struggle for nash not the not the learning part he was naturally good at learning, and that was kind of the problem. Like he said, he was bored at school, and that feeling would stick with him. I thought junior high school, high school, the forced pace of learning for everyone indiscriminately, doesn't matter if you learn fast, if you learn slow. I was a person that learned extremely fast. Like I said, the guidance counselor said, just bored with stuff. <laughs> so once I became aware, when you're in third and fourth grade and you're bored, you're just like, oh, A's, 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 A's. When you're in eighth and ninth grade and you're bored, you're just like, I don't care. I don't want to do this. Mm. This does not improve anything for me. 
So I would show up, I'd take a test, I get an A, I didn't do any homework. I was like, I'm not, I already get it. Like I, I heard you the first time, I'll answer the tests and questions in two months. That was my mindset. So I went from straight A's in the eighth grade, ninth grade, got some A's, B's, then started to go down a little bit, B's, 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 B's. I never got like poor grades, but I just stopped being uh, uh, good student. A good student. <laughs> so I still did well on my tests. I did well on my SATs and all those other things. Um, but high school was also uh, coming of uh, age personality-wise was when I decided I wanted to do something with business. Did you have like, was that inspiration? Like it just popped in your head, I want to do business. I So I followed my mom's footsteps. I My first real job after the paper route, I worked at McDonald's. Then I worked there the next summer, and then I worked at a podiatrist's office. And soon I was like, some of the same things I was thinking about education, I was thinking about work. Like, I can't just work for anyone. Like, if I'm going to work for someone, they need to work harder than me and probably be sp- not necessarily smarter, but uh, have a better understanding of what I'm to do than I have it. So that, like, hit me in that moment. And that's because your parents, is that because your mom and that influence that what you wanted is because your mom? I'd I'd say, so my mom was very, 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 very clear that as a black man, you are not going to be handed anything in this world and you have to work twice as hard as anybody else. I think every black parent. Yep. So that's the conversation. So like that's rolling around in my head. I'm like, well, (laughs) then I'm just not going to work for anybody. Yeah, well, then I'll, I'll... just do it myself. So business, 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 business. Remember, Nash isn't even in college yet. So you're in your senior year. Everybody's talking about college and getting ready to go. So what happened to your senior year? I'm assuming you graduate. You did pretty well. Did you apply to colleges, I'm assuming? I, I did. And... I actually, I wasn't that interested in going to college for the same reasons, but I had that thought and I did not want to go to college. I knew I had to go to college, but I didn't want to go. Like, no, you're, not, you're not coming out of the Ahmed household. <laughs> no, 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 no. You, didn't, you didn't have a choice. You did not have a choice. Okay. You were going to college. So I, had, I picked computer science and business. And I knew that if I was going to go, which I had to go, that's what it was going to be. Okay. But I didn't... I didn't the, the school that I went to was the school that my mom picked. That's how indifferent I was to college. And I applied. What school was that? That was Drew University. Okay. And she picked it. It was a good liberal arts school. It was, by the time I graduated, it was like the second most expensive uh, school <laughs> in the country. But I got some scholarships and some loans, and I'm still paying for it now. Did you still have that same feeling during college? There were classes where I didn't buy the book. Like I, I would, I would borrow the book from someone like the last, you know, two weeks before uh, a midterm or something, and like, hey, can I use your book for a couple of days? And I do the same thing around finals. Like there were classes that I just didn't buy the book. There are classes that I never went, but I would show up and I would take the test. Right. So I was like, okay, I'll do what I need to do to pass because I'm. To me, again, this is. Some people learn best this way. Some people learn best in other ways. Some people learn the way I learn best way for me to learn something is give me the information as fast as possible in one sitting. I will sit there for 20 hours and just dump all the information and I'm good to go. You want to quiz me on it in a month? Great. Two months? Great. The point of what they're doing is not long-term retention. They're not teaching you these things for long-term retention. So why do we have 
these models that are based on repetition, 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 repetition. Mm. You're going to forget all of that stuff, right? So if you're assessing a person's, I'm going into my theory now. If you're assessing ability, a person's ability to understand information, give them the information, see if they understand it, give them an A if they do, right? And if somebody needs a different process for getting to that understanding, great. I don't need, I don't need that process. I, I would say a third of, uh, people that go to college would probably learn or probably do learn the same way that I learn. And they're forced to sit in a, a class for at college could be one year. As far as I'm concerned, it could be one year long <laughs> and I can learn the same amount of information and be out there in the real world. That's where Nash wanted to be most in the real world. So he finishes up his undergrad with a computer science major and a business management minor. But when it came to finding a job in the real world, guess what? Things weren't as cut and dry. The truth was, Nash didn't want to be an entry-level programmer, debugging someone else's code. He wanted to create something on his own. And I know that feeling very well. So when he got done with school, he went into a different direction. I started my production career, which was very short-lived. This time, it was music. Yeah, I, I I told my mom I was going to take a one year break and then I would go to graduate school. I, I, re, I revolted on my own path and just said, you know, I like music. It's fun. We get paid sometimes. We get to work with famous people. Your music gets heard by a lot of people sometimes. So did you get a chance to work with fame, quote, famous people? Oh, yeah, we, we did. And I think the again, sometimes there are certain moments that change your path significantly. Like I was making music and I was doing like on internet forums, just posting stuff here and there. And then a contact knew somebody that knew uh, everyone from uh, Dipset, which you guys know at that time. Yep. He was part of a producer trio actually called The Management. They had an impressive run and produced for some big names. So Jim Jones was on the first track that we made. And then we produced for like fabulous uh, Lil Wayne, um, Ashanti. Ja Rule. Okay, wow. A lot of people. But music wasn't meant to be for Nash. He got antsy in the business. It was basically the inconsistency of it all. Being at the mercy of artists' schedules. And being a music business myself, I know the feeling. Nash decided to hang it up as a music producer. And he decided to go back to school for his graduate degree. He gets started on his MBA at Fordham University which he would eventually finish, but not before a bit of a detour. He got a job at a small telecommunications company. He moved up quick. In fact, he was offered a chance to be partner in that company. He figured the experience was worth it and accepted the offer. So you're part owner of the company. How, then how did that, tell me about the path to undock. What was that journey? It it was, doesn't seem like a direct path. It was not a direct path. So, uh, I think sometime in 2008 or nine. Yeah. Right when I got my MBA, I started writing down like I like my thoughts and my ideas and like notepad. And then I started doing it in my phone. Like I was just always writing everything down. And then at some point I just said, how many, how many ideas for businesses do I actually have? And I also started registering domains for these ideas for businesses that I was going to launch. And then at some point, I think it was 2015 or 16, I'm like, I own 49 domains and each one of those domains is for a business that I'm going to launch. I'm like, you're a serial non-starter. 
You haven't started any of these businesses because you're working 70, 80, 90 hours at this other business. So I'm like, if you ever plan to launch any of these businesses, you need to have a plan to launch one of these businesses. He made logos for each of these businesses, even taglines too. He was deep into it with no shortage of ideas. It was overwhelming. Thinking of what business I want to launch next, I'm learning about venture scale businesses. And part of the decision factor was which one of these businesses can scale the biggest. So he began to boil it all down and let his best ideas rise to the top. So I let the ideas mature over time and iterate, iterate, iterate. And I landed on Undock being video, meetings, calls, scheduling, calendar. And this is way, this is before the, you know, COVID pandemic and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So <laughs> I was running three businesses at the time that I, three separate <laughs> businesses at the time that I launched Undock. And one of my biggest issues was being available for Anybody at any of those companies, it was very, very hard. There's, so basically, the startup was basically solving the problem for yourself. hundred, 150%. I'm like, everybody has their schedules and everybody has downtime where they don't have meetings and are not talking to people. Can somebody just figure out a way to like flop all that downtime where you're not talking to people and kill all that congestion when everybody's trying to talk to you? So that was the, like, that's the problem I was solving for myself. I mean... It, there was a project that I ran earlier in the year that I was getting 150 calls inbound per day for my employees, 150 calls per day. Like there is a better way. I looked online. There was no better way. I said, I'm going to figure it out. So yes, I was solving my own problem. I was, I'm not, I won't say I was one of the busiest because, you know, busy is, is not always a good thing, but I was a bottleneck for all of the companies. So Everyone would come to me and they would need me and it was hard sorting it. Like there would be two hours that go by, nobody called me. And then it'll be two hours go by, 50 people called me. Like it didn't make sense to me. But I knew Undock could be a global business, a $10 billion, $50 billion, $100 billion business. After sitting on it for quite a bit of time, I wasn't just like, I'm just going to start this one. I had so many different ideas, some of them good, some of them maybe not so good. Some of them venture backable, some of them not venture backable. I picked the biggest, most venture backable idea that I had and started working on it. And here we are. That company was on dock. A company that recently closed a 1.6 million equity round of investment from the black-led VC firm Lightship Capital. With other investors, including our previous Diverse Disruptors guest, Arlen Hamilton. Coming up next on Diverse Disruptors, Nash explains how Undock works. It all goes back to that pain point he saw with scheduling. He breaks it all down and he talks about the brutally honest advice he got when he was seeking backing for it. That's next on Diverse Disruptors. Support for Diverse Disruptors comes from your membership and Northwestern Mutual. Northwestern Mutual is making investments and supporting programs that create a diverse and inclusive tech and entrepreneur community locally and nationally. Support for Diverse Disruptors also comes from United Way's Techquity, an initiative of Technology United. Techquity strives to bridge the divide throughout the community for students, job seekers, and vulnerable populations. Support for Diverse Disruptors comes from your membership and from Carthage College. Carthage is committed to embracing diversity 
promoting inclusion and practicing equity to nurture a true sense of belonging to individuals within the campus community. More about Carthage's diversity and inclusion commitments at carthage.edu. Welcome back to Diverse Disruptors. I'm Tariq Moody. At this point in Nash's story, he's on to something. He sees a real opportunity to make a product that transforms how meetings are scheduled at work. And not just scheduling, but the whole workflow around meetings. If you work remotely at all this year, and even if you didn't, you can probably relate to the same problem with getting a big meeting together. You know, random interruptions, like back and forth. Ever heard the phrase, hurting cats? Try to schedule a meeting with like seven people, like no matter what, you, even if you're using a, a, some sort of platform, it's a pain, it's a nightmare. Talk to me about the product. What makes the product special? Explain it to some uh, potential customer and then tell me how many customers do you have? How many people are using the product? Okay. This is something I'm working on. There's there's two answers to that question. What makes the product special for the customer and what makes the product special for me are two different things. And I'll try to be brief with both. The customer will have the easiest experience with scheduling meetings, hosting meetings, documenting their meetings, remembering their meetings, taking notes from their meeting ever. Almost all of it is going to come together and just be done for you. So for scheduling, you most of your meetings right now are scheduled via email. And yes, you can use alternative tools, but none of them actually replace what you do, which is try to find a time that works with the other person that's optimal for both of you. And I won't go into the details of why none of the existing solutions are actually optimal for both people. They might work for both people. It's a slot that works. But, you know, if I have an availability at 1 p.m. in between four hours of meetings on both sides, it doesn't mean that that's the optimal time for me to have a meeting just because it's slotted there and open. So uh, we take a lot of things into account. We take every single person involved in the meeting into account. Uh, we use AI to to check your scheduling behavior, your scheduling preferences on Microsoft, Google, on Apple, people that have Calendly pages, people that have Doodle pages, x.ai, you can book me, HubSpot, Outreach, whatever it is, you'll be able to connect and instantly schedule a meeting with anyone. The whole meeting stack is taken care of for you. So uh, we'll instantly generate uh, a conferencing link for you. Uh, we automatically take uh, notes in the meeting. You can create action items and all that stuff real time on the screen in the meeting. So it's like a meeting in a, I don't, I don't want to say a meeting in a box. It's the perfect <laughs> meeting cycle, life cycle management for anyone. And it's collaborative. That's the whole thing. It's not about, you have to use my thing to schedule with me or um, we have to meet on this platform. And then what's going to happen is Undock is going to become the the air traffic control for all communications and timing and meetings and conversations. And that's the thing that that uh, really, really, really excites me. Part of this podcast, we, we try to, to address the reason we do it because the lack of founders that look like us, yes. women, brown, and a lot of stories, you hear a lot of stories about the challenge of trying to get funding. You know, 1% goes to black people, less than, less than 1% go to black women. Did you have any challenges being a black founder, getting undock on off the ground, talking to investors? Were there any hurdles, barriers that you had to overcome? So here's here's the theme. The first person that I met with, I, I just put Undock on AngelList as a company like a month earlier. 
I registered as a corporation. I put it on AngelList as a business, just like setting up the the table or whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. And a month in, I reached out to Jason Calacanis because I'm like, hey, you're the reason I'm doing this. I didn't tell him that at the time. I did actually run into him on Clubhouse and I told him that, but he was the reason I was choosing a venture-scaled business. So I wrote him an email, cold email. I looked up how he likes to be approached and I followed the formula and he's like, excellent email. When can you come meet me? I was like, uh, I'm not ready. Yeah, no, I'm ready. Let's go. I'll be there three days from now. And that's what I did. I hopped on a plane. But prior to that, uh, an investor found me on or found Undock on AngelList. He says, oh, this is an interesting product. This is like sales IQ mixed with Calendly or something. I was like, yeah, you're kind of on the right track. He's like, cool, let's meet. I was like, I can't. I'm meeting Jason Calcanis. I'm going to California. And I also have a YC interview. I'll see you after that. Right. I was trying to you know, make <laughs> sound uh, legitimate, right? So the business had been incorporated for like two months at the time. So I sit down with him. I go through the business and he's like, oh, yeah, cool, 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 good idea. Um, he said, you shouldn't have any trouble raising money. So let's break that down. Like it's, it's one sentence. I've only given you half of it. He says that. I'm like, you're right because I have revenue and I have a product and I have a team and it's a pretty decent idea. I shouldn't have any trouble raising money, right? I didn't know the statistics at the time, but I know the racial statistics for anything in this country and <laughs> it's just systemic. So I'm like, I know it would be harder. Like I said, my mom always said, you're always going to have to work harder, but I didn't know how bad it was. And right? so he says to me, you shouldn't have any trouble raising money. Great. Yes. Except for the fact you're black. He said those exact words to me because he was being helpful. This is not, is this the guy on AngelList that hit you up? Yeah, he's not black. He's not black. <laughs> so he was just being very, very direct. He said, except for the fact you're black. And I was like, okay. He's like, but you have a really compelling business idea. You have some revenue and you speak well and you dress the part. So I think you may be able to pass. Imagine hearing that. You got this great idea, this this fundable, scalable idea that you really believe in, you know, could change the way people could work. And for someone like an investor you are pitching to won't invest, not because of the product, but because of your identity. If you're surprised by this, here's proof maybe you shouldn't be. This happens to black founders all the time, even people on Nash's level. Here is some glaring evidence According to Crunchbase, in 2020, U.S. companies raised a staggering $150 billion. But get this, but less than 1% of that, yes, 1% of that amount went to black-led startups. But that didn't stop Nash. Nash kept moving, grateful for his mentor's candor and more motivated than ever. Another bit of feedback he received was that he needed a co-founder. I, I found a co-founder. I, I put a very intentional search out there. Uh, it took me a couple months or a few months, really, to uh, get a co-founder. And then once I had a co-founder, I started recruiting additional team. And once we had, I think, five or six people, that, then I started to feel ready. Or, but you still haven't had any, you got, you're still, you're doing this without any VC funding. Not, right? not a penny, not a penny. So it's basically bootstrapping right now to this point. Yep, bootstrapping. And like, Anybody else, they would just go out there and say, hey, you know, I have a team, I have a product, I have an idea, I've written a lot of it close to going to market. Yeah, they'd just be able to raise some money. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't take any 
outbound approach to investors. Every once in a while, an investor would reach out because they would see like me post something on Twitter, uh, which Twitter is a weapon for sure. So I was very intentional about what I tweeted and how I tweeted, <laughs> who I tweeted and who I responded to on Twitter. And it worked out. I just didn't do it. I didn't reach out to investors during that entire all of last year. I applied to the accelerator. We got into the accelerator. And then I was like, I'm ready to talk to investors. In the accelerator day two, like, don't talk to investors. I'm like, what? I've been waiting a year to talk to investors. They're like, get the product right. The investors will come. I'm like, and honestly, and they don't know this yet, but they'll find out. Like, I'm sitting there like, yes, for most people, if you get into an accelerator or if you have the product ready, you're going to get money. I'm like, that's just not the case for us. It's us being underrepresented founders. I'm like, that's not the case. Like, the, the funny thing I heard this morning, uh, what Adventure Beat about this startup called Collective Freelance Product. Yeah. They got $9 million, around $9 million without a pitch deck. <laughs> without a pitch deck. Incredible. Incredible. Like there's one, one investor was like, oh, we never invest this early. And then I looked up, they invested in a company that was incorporated in January. They invested in them the first week of March with no product. They hadn't wow. even launched yet. I'm like, oh, you don't invest. Okay, all right, cool. Look at your portfolio. But anyway, the, my, the accelerator was completely correct that we didn't need the investment money at that exact moment in time. And it would behoove us to get the story and the narrative right, build out the product a little bit more, position the product, and then talk to investors. And it was single-handedly the best advice I got. Part of the accelerator program Nash was in, and most for that matter, and in something they called a demo day. This is basically a pitch event where the cohort presents their ideas, their, their, their business proposals to potential investors. It's, it's the last and probably most important step in that accelerator. So Nash got to demo day, and guess what? Demo day went well. He had tons of interest in Undock, more than even he expected. A hundred investors post-demo day reached out to us. It didn't hurt that this was all happening as companies during this pandemic were adapting to remote work in 2020. Investors saw a potential in Undock. Almost all of my investment meetings were all inbound, which is incredible and totally not expected. I said it's going to take me six months and everyone says, oh, you need to meet 100 investors to get enough checks to get. I'm like, no, If, if an average person needs to meet 70 to 100 investors, I need to meet 250 investors. The first two weeks of fundraising, all I heard was, no, 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 no. Too early, too early. But hearing too early over and over and over again does not mean you are too early. So we we marched forward. And literally in the last or the next three weeks after that, we had the entire round completed. And then in the two weeks following, we oversubscribed the round by, uh, I guess, 160%. When he says oversubscribe the round by 160%, he means Undock raised more money than the goal the company set for itself. He set out to raise just $1 million. He actually raised $1.6 million in that initial seed round. Every single conversation was yes, 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 yes. Every single conversation was yes to the point that we said no, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. It's too much money. It's too much money. It's too much money. It's turned them down. Yes, a lot. What was the what was the, the, the reason behind turning them down? I've been fighting for it. Yep. Now you're saying no. I, I believe at minimum it's a $10 billion business. I was not raising at a $10 billion valuation. 
So uh, until the markets have that same belief, I'm going to to trade as little equity as possible. Mm. And the only investors that we took in after I got over the million dollar mark were investors that I thought could add serious value uh, to the business, to the growth, to the speed uh, from from my so investment relationships are the perfect education for me. Not that I listen to everything that they say, but you meet with them for an hour once a month and they're like, hey, do this, do this. Did you think about this? Did you think about that? Did you think about this? What about this? Try this. I've seen so many people do this and fail. I love that stuff. I eat it up. Like I I digest, I process, I change course sometimes. Sometimes I double down because I'm like, no, they're definitely wrong there. And there are reasons that they gave me proved to me that I'm right and they're wrong. So it was a lot of no's. And then the end of the round, there was consideration of raising a much larger round, four times as large round. And then we had investors that are waiting by to do it. And we told them no as well. <laughs> so like I said, that fundraising experience is not typical. I probably will never have that fundraising experience again. It was the timing. It was a good presentation. Uh, it was a good product. As we close out with Nash, I asked him what his advice would be for an entrepreneur that looks like us. What would he tell that aspiring founder in this space? So my best advice is learn how to talk about your business to your audience. If you're talking to an investor, learn how to talk about your your business, not in the way you want to, not in the cool thing that you think is awesome, but in a way that is compelling to an investor. If you're talking to a consumer, learn how to talk about it in a way that's compelling to a consumer. Like I just answered the question in two ways because I'm still holding on to the, the big <laughs> solution, which I didn't get into like how it all works, but I, I can't I can't let it go. But when I'm talking to a consumer, I like break it down like, hey, how do you schedule your meetings? Right? I can go into that when I'm talking to an investor. I'm like, this is a big problem. It's broken. Nobody's fixed it. These guys have tried this, but it doesn't work because this is this, this. So you just have to learn how to talk to your audience about your business. And that's the single most important thing that I've done this year. That's Nash Ahmed, founder of Undock. The AI-powered scheduling platform has rolled out a steady stream of additional features, including video. Since Nash and I spoke, you can find it on mobile devices and at undock.com. Thanks for listening to episode three of Diverse Disruptors. If you're just finding us now, be sure to check out my interviews with Arlen Hamilton and Dorsch Deans. You can listen to them both right now. And coming up next time on Diverse Disruptors, I bring it back to Milwaukee with Lita Mallet. She is the founding high school principal at Milwaukee Excellence Charter School and has committed to quadrupling the number of black students who take the AP computer science exam. We'll talk about how her school is going to get it done and why she is personally so committed to seeing Black students succeed in tech. Our Black students deserve to have choices because if we're going to really say that they have choices once they leave, um, that means making sure that they're ready and literate in technology so that they can um, take on the competitive workforce once they're, once they're 18. That's next time on Diverse Disruptors. Diverse Disruptors is presented by Northwestern Mutual and United Ways Tequity with support from Carthage College. Diverse Disruptors is hosted by Tariq Moody, executive produced by myself, Nate Immig, with production support from Kenny Perez. 
marketing by Sarah Lahr and Aaron Bagata, with community outreach by Maddie Reardon. Our development director is Maggie Corey. Dory Zori is 88.9's program director. Jordan Lee is our station director. And Kevin Sucker is 88.9's executive director. Biggest thanks to our members for making this and all content on 88.9 possible. You can find out more about membership at radiomilwaukee.org slash support. Diverse Disruptors is an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.